I didn't really ever have a place that I thought of as home, but I swear the minute we set foot in Minnesota, I knew I'd found home. I fell in love with this place and with its people. For whatever reason, it spoke to my heart. Welcome to Big Red Canoe, the podcast from Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness, where we introduce you to captivating people and intriguing stories from America's treasured wilderness. I'm Dave Meyer. Grab a paddle and hop on in. If you love the Boundary Waters and enjoy literature, especially mysteries, we've got a special treat for you. Today on the podcast, we're joined by New York Times bestselling author William Kent Kruger. If you haven't picked up one of his books yet, you might want to grab one for some time in the hammock on your next Boundary Waters trip or an audiobook for the car ride up the trail. Kruger writes a series of mysteries set in the Northwoods of Minnesota. The protagonist of many of Kruger's novels, Cork O'Connor, is the former sheriff of Tamarack County and is part Irish and part Ojibwe. In his books, Kruger explores the tensions within these cultures and examines important social topics that reflect real life. His most recent Cork O'Connor mystery is Fox Creek, which came out last year, but he's also written a series of standalone books, including This Tender Land. Our executive director at Friends of the Boundary Waters, Chris Knopp, recently spoke to Kent Kruger to talk about his books and his writing process and to share questions from readers. And it was clear from the conversation that Kruger's characters and sense of place that resonate with readers come from the heart of the author himself. Here's Chris. Wow, there is so much to talk about with Kent Kruger here. He is the author of 19 Mysteries in the Cork O'Connor series. And he began with the with Iron Lake. And his most recent one is, is Fox Creek here. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about those. He also is the author of some standalone novels. He has four of those, I believe. This Tender Land is, is the most recent one of those. But he has another one coming out, The, the River We Remember on the day after Labor Day, September 5th. So, so he's a prolific author and he writes with such authenticity of, of people and, and, and land. But Tent is not a native Minnesotan. So he moved to Minnesota when he was 30 years old, when his wife, Diane, started law school here. And he moved around as a, as a child, but grew up predominantly in the Cascade Mountains in Oregon here. He, it's kind of interestingly, maybe we'll discuss this here or maybe another time where he attended Stanford, but, but was asked to discontinue his educational pursuits for some radical activities at, at, at Stanford there. Kent has worked at the University of Minnesota in the child development research area there. So Kent has a kind of a fascinating background and he has such a, such a authentic and, and, and original voice here. And, and Kent, you want to give people throughout the course of our, our conversation here a sense of you as a as a person, a sense of how you approach the craft of writing, and and the the topics that you explore with the you know the the Cork O'Connor series here, and, and especially some of the contemporary issues that you discuss in in, in Fox Creek. How did you get interested in, in writing here? I've always written, Chris. <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember a time when I wasn't writing. So here's the story I like to tell audiences. The first story I remember writing was a short story in the third grade. It was called The Walking Dictionary. Now I gotta tell you this, my father was a high school English teacher. And when I was a kid, he was always storming around the house ranting something like, nobody uses dictionaries enough. Nobody uses dictionaries enough. 
So in the third grade, I wrote a short story called The Walking Dictionary, which was in fact about a dictionary that didn't think it was being used enough. It magically sprouted legs so that it could toddle off into the world and go to the people that needed it. My third grade teacher went gaga over that story. My folks oohed and on. I swear to you, Chris, in the third grade, I knew I was destined to be a storyteller, a writer. So I, I served kind of a long apprenticeship, though. I didn't publish my first novel, the first novel in the Cork O'Connor series, Iron Lake, until I was 48 years old. But I was always writing up to that point. And, you know, I want to explore that that a, a bit. You know, the, the sort of combination of, of two things that seem a little bit in conflict, but, you know, may come together a little bit like peanut butter and chocolate. And it's that, that creative process and you have that discipline you know, to, to, to really dedicate yourself to, to writing. Did you talk about that, the craft of writing for you and that creativity and in combination with discipline? Sure. That discipline is, I think, important. I think if you're an artist, I don't care what your medium is. I believe if you're going to accomplish anything, you have to approach your art in a disciplined way. I love this quote. I think it was from Eudora Welty, who was famous for writing the same time every day, same two hours every day. And she was once asked in an interview, well, because the muse always visit you. And she said, nobody want to be there when she does. <laughs> so, <laughs> it is the discipline that allows the muse to speak to you. For me, writing, you know, I began writing every day for a really practical reason. We had just moved to the Twin Cities. My wife entered law school. I was the guy who had to keep a roof overhead and food on the table, but I wanted desperately to be a writer. And so we were living a couple of blocks from an iconic cafe back in the day, an iconic cafe called the St. Clair Broiler. Yeah. yeah. Why don't you describe it to folks, what, what, what it was like how yeah, back in the day? Yeah, it was Corner Cafe, kind of a funky place, wonderful, funky, been there forever, owned by a wonderful guy named uh, Jimmy Theros, had a neon sign front. As I understand it, it made it onto the National Historic Registry of Signs or something like that. Anyway, they opened their doors at six o'clock in the morning. And so I pitched the idea to my wife, Diane, if you're willing to get the kids up and dressed and fed and off to school, I can write first thing. <laughs> I swear to you, when I get home from, at the end of the day, I will be the best husband, best father you could possibly imagine. She bought it. So there I was at six o'clock every morning, turned out seven days a week, writing. I spent an hour in those days, it would be an hour and 15 minutes I would write. And then I would Head off to work. Once I jumped ship and became a writer full time, a few years later, I would spend two or three hours there in a coffee shop. Great. And you started writing longhand and then made the, the transition to, to computers. Was that a difficult transition or what, what was that like? Yeah. You know, Chris, I have to say, you've already done your research well. Yeah, it was. Uh, so I wrote my first eight or nine. A novels in the Cork O'Connor series, longhand and cheap mead, wirebound notebooks with a big pen because didn't have a lot of money. And this was long before we had laptops. Um, if you write longhand, there is a step that involves transcribing your work into a word processing program or, or situation of some kind. And that takes time. So I was running behind deadline, was working hard to try to meet deadline. And I thought, you know, if I, if I could skip that transcription part, Maybe it could actually meet deadline. Now, abandoning the, the writing longhand, which are really, honest to God, a really scary preposition for me because writing longhand was a part of the magic. It was like the idea came here, <laughs> through my heart, down the arm, through the pen onto the page. And I was concerned that if I monkeyed with the magic, 
maybe it wouldn't be there anymore, but it, I went ahead and gave it a shot and it worked. So I write directly to a laptop. Well, I guess the magic just goes to your fingertips then onto the computer. So the magic's still there. It just directs itself a little bit differently there. It still flows. It still flows. And, you know, when thinking of some of your inspirations here, who are some of the authors that inspire you? These days, you know, I go back a, a lot to, to writers who inspired me in the very beginning. My father, the high school English teacher, when I was 18 years old, insisted I read Ernest Hemingway. And I fell madly in love with Hemingway. Well, I, fe I fell madly in love with that mythic image of Ernest Hemingway. And so when I was 18 years old, I, I wanted to be Ernest Hemingway. And I, I tried way too long trying to write the great American novel as Hemingway <laughs> might have written it. Stupid on so many levels. Hemingway really doesn't influence my work anymore, with the exception of trying to be as fair as I possibly can in terms of the writing itself, trying to get rid of anything that really doesn't move the story forward or somehow move the reader. Steinbeck, of course, has always been one of my heroes, his, his profound sense of place and his compassion in the way he deals with those in, in, in our society who are, you know, on a lesser rung on the ladder. I have always so admired the work of Cormac McCarthy. He's a stylist that is just phenomenal. When I read a Cormac McCarthy novel, honestly, I'm not sure what's going on, but I love the way he says it. <laughs> You know, in my Cork Goddard series, greatly influenced by the work of Tony Hillerman, who in the mystery genre set his series on the in the Four Corners area of the Southwest and dealt significantly with the culture of the Navo, the Diné. So have had a lot of influences. I guess you know that this was the, the place for you. But it's what, what what connected you to to this place? You know, you mentioned the fact that I I'm not native. I really did come from kind of a family of nomads. We moved around an enormous amount. You know, my whole youth, Oregon was the place I stayed the longest, but I only stayed there four years. So you know, I was all over the map in terms of the United States. I didn't really ever have a place that I called or thought of as home. But I swear the minute we set foot in Minnesota, I knew I'd found home, Chris. I, I fell in love with this place and with its people. For whatever reason, it spoke to my heart. I have tried to set stories in some of the other places, like beautiful places, Oregon. You know, I'm not sure there's a more beautiful place on earth than Oregon. But it just didn't speak to me in the same way that Minnesota did, for whatever reason. Maybe in an earlier life, I, I lived in Minnesota. Who knows? Who knows? But shortly after we moved to the Twin Cities, we began doing what everybody in the Twin Cities does in the summer. We began vacationing up north. We began spending a, a little bit of time every summer at a YMCA camp north of Ely, a place called Camp de Nord. You probably know Camp de Nord, right? You know, my family has spent many parts of a summer up there as well. So that, that was my first connection to uh, northern Minnesota as well, Camp yeah, de Nord. So so Camp de Nord, for those of you who don't know, it is literally across the road from the Boundary Waters Kuno area wilderness. And when I discovered that remarkable territory, I knew this is what I want to write about. So right from the get-go, I knew I was going to set my work in northern Minnesota because it just, it just so spoke to me. I mean, it's such a remarkable area. <laughs> who wouldn't want to write about it? Exactly. And, and half people die in the Boundary Waters too, right? You know, it's such a beautiful place. You're going to well, die, die in a beautiful place, right? Is that the... 
You know, the truth is people do die in the boundary waters. The guys who shouldn't be out there portaging or out there portaging, they have heart attacks, things like that. There are accidents. But most people are murdered. <laughs> people are in the waters. Well, want to, you know, explore some of the characters and some of the topics that you explore through those characters. So, so Cork O'Connor, the, the protagonist of your, your series there is half Irish and half Ojibwe here. And in, in, Talk about how you came to give, you know, round out that character. And I'd like to explore, you know, your your exploration of Anishinaabe culture here. So so how did you come to the character of Cork O'Connor here? So here was the earliest seed for Cork. Long before I knew the kinds of stories I was going to write or really knew anything about the stories I might want to write. I thought there was a guy who intrigued me. I thought I might write about him. And all I knew about him at the very beginning, Chris, was he was going to be the kind of guy who was so resilient that no matter how far life pushed him down, he would always bob back to the surface and his name would be Cork. Swear to God, that's where it began. You know, I told that to an audience not too long ago and some wise guy in the audience said, why don't you just call him Bob? Uh, so, so when I decided I was going to set my work in the North Country, and took a really good look at the North Country, I realized it's hard to set a story there without including the Ojibwe, the Anishinaabe, as an element of the work because their influence up there is ubiquitous. It's everywhere and it's powerful. So I knew I was going to incorporate the, the Ojibwe somehow in, into this story. And then, you know, Chris, what, what every fiction writer is looking for is conflict because it's conflict that drives great stories. Mm -hmm. And when I looked up north, that's what I saw, conflict in this wonderfully rugged landscape, conflict in the kind of weather that we get up there, and conflict in the cultures, white and native, trying to live together amicably and often not doing a very good job of it. And then when I thought about conflict even more, I thought, what if I created an actor who, in who he was, could mirror the conflict of those dominant cultures, white and uh, Ojibwe? So I knew Cork was going to be a man of mixed heritage. So I knew his, his, uh, he would be Ojibwe on one side. And then the question was, what would his Euro background, his Euro ancestry be? And in, you know, anybody who's of mixed heritage in the North Country, you could be Ojibwe Finn, Ojibwe Swede, Ojibwe Slav, Ojibwe Russian, Ojibwe German, you name it. And for a variety of reasons, I decided to make my character Ojibwe and Irish and Cork became very naturally than Corcoran O'Connor. You know, in basing a story with with elements of native culture in it. How do you, how do you do that? Well, you know, speak with authenticity and, and not being appropriative. How do you, you know, do that? Well, I do my best not to appropriate this. <laughs> my guess is that there are native people out there who don't, <laughs> don't believe I do a very good job of that, but we'll That's another discussion. Uh, uh -huh. So here's what, here's the truth. Here is the honest to God truth, Chris. When I decided to include the Ojibwe, as an element of the work I was going to, to create. I, I knew about as much about the Ojibwe people as most white folks do, which is nothing. But I was a cultural anthropology major in college, and the idea of learning about this culture, not my own, was an exciting proposition for me. And so I began, and all good academics began, I began by reading about the Ojibwe. And then in the course of my research, I began to meet folks who were, in fact, Ojibwe, part of the Ojibwe community, and form relationships. It becomes such important friendships to me all these years. I rely on my Ojibwe friends for so much. They're so generous with their insights and their perceptions and their 
suggestions. So many of the stories that I've written have come out of issues that my Native friends have suggested that I think about you know, putting it part of a story. Whenever I have a manuscript ready to go before I send it to my publisher, if I have, if the deadline will allow me, I give it to at least one, but usually two of my Ojibwe friends to read and vet for me. So I haven't said anything that's too stupid or even worse, offensive. And, uh, you know, I, I am painfully aware whenever I sit down to write a Corporal Connor novel that I'm a white guy trespassing on a culture that's not my own and I work very hard to get it right. Well, your, your research really comes through, as I mentioned before, coming to Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness, I worked for an organization that worked on Indian land recovery. And when I started reading your work, the authenticity that you, boy, you had really done your homework and addressed contemporary issues of, of land loss and, and, and that embodying that conflict of cultural conflict in this one character was really, really impressive. And you, you know, as you mentioned, you don't do just the paper research, you ha do research with people, have people read it and it provide you with that sort of, you know, real authentic voice that comes from having conversations with people about it and having those, you know, Anishinaabe readers really give you that, you know, that, that read over on things. You know, the Corco O'Connor has a particular, you know, representation in sort of the native place there. Why don't you kind of talk about that in, in perhaps a colonial culture, we might view him as a warrior, but, it, but he's not exactly a warrior. Why don't you talk about, about that Cork O'Connor character in kind of the native cultural sense here? Yeah, before folks joined us, Chris and I were talking about the term I use when, when I'm trying to characterize Cork, and the term I use is an Ojibwe term, Ogijita. And technically it means, or I guess narrowly, it means warrior. But when I was introduced to that term, the Ojibwe friend who introduced me to it said, you know, that's technically what it means. But really, we believe it means more one who stands between evil and his people. And I thought that was a perfect characterization of Korg. Because, I mean, there are times he doesn't want to be a warrior. He wants to make sure that he keeps bad things from happening. There's another interesting character in your, in your books. And I'd like to explore this, this character that's intriguing for myself and a lot of readers. And that's sort of a, a, a major driving force in, in Fox Creek here. Henry Malo. why don't you talk a little bit about Henry here and, and, and talk about what he represents and, and uh, for, for you and for, the, for your writing. Yeah, Henry is, you know, it's a the Cork O'Connor series, but Henry, Henry is everyone's favorite character. <laughs> and I so get that because he's my favorite character to write. Whenever I create a scene in which Henry plays a part, I almost never have to revise that scene. Whatever it is that Henry says, whatever it is that Henry does is exactly what he should say or do. Where does that come from? God only knows. In fact, where did Henry come from? God only knows. Henry, you know, I know Henry exists. I don't have a Henry in my own life, but I know he exists because I've had so many of my friends or readers of my series in, in the Ojibwe community tell me, oh, that's, you know, that's our elder so-and-so. Of course we know Henry. But Henry for me kind of... You know, one of the reasons that those of us love being, who are storytellers, love being storytellers is, is that there is, you know, we talked about magic earlier. There is magic involved. Things happen when you're creating a story. If you sink yourself deeply into the imagining of a story, things come to you that are beyond yourself. They come from, think, I think that if you sink yourself really deeply, you go to a level that's below conscious thought and you touch, touch 
those things that are universal and what you bring up kind of amazes you and things kind of fall into your lap from God knows where. And Henry was one of those things that fell into my lap. I created him right from the very beginning. He's in the opening of Iron Lake. And Chris, I remember writing the Iron Lake opens with this horrific snowstorm. Everybody's familiar with those in Northern Minnesota as well in Southern Minnesota. And Cork's driving through this horrific snowstorm, blizzard, nobody should be out in it. He's in his old Bronco and he spots a figure walking along the side of the road and he stops, invites the figure to get inside. This figure seats himself next to Cork, takes off his hat, his mittens, unwinds the scarf and Henry, it's Henry Malou. He reveals himself. And as I'm writing that, I'm going, well, this is an interesting character. I wonder what he's all about. I had no idea when I created Henry or when Henry came to me, the significant part that he would end up playing in this series. I mean, Henry is the moral compass. He is the moral heart of the Cork O'Connor series. And I, I know readers just respond to him tremendously and they will probably string me up if I ever, if I ever put Henry on the path of souls. I get, I get threatened all the time. He, he, if you, you better not kill Henry Malou or else, you know, kind of a thing. Well, you know, I want to explore that a bit because, you know, readers do, do take these fictional characters and they become real. And, and part of, we know with the mystery series that Cork O'Connor, he can't die. We, 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 we kind of get that as, as a reader, but you, you know, in Iron Lake, you know, Molly dies, right? She, she dies. So well, thanks for letting the cat out of the bag, Chris. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. But there's an even even bigger cat out of the bag opportunity later on in the series. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And now with with the Henry character, you were foreshadowing that that Henry would would not be with us, and and yet and yet you you know people will still people will still read this. But I want to kind of explore. I mean, you had a chance not to bring him back. You know what's so were you, I mean, you know, I know when, when you, when, when Molly killed off, you were having tears going down your, your cheeks as you were writing that. Was it too much to try to kill off Henry, you know, or is that, but he's still around. So perhaps you explore that, 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 you know, does he die? Does he not die? You know, sir? Sure. A number of books ago, a book called Desolation Mountain. I set up a situation right at the end of that story. Henry is sitting with Stephen, Cork's son. And Stephen is a young man who has visions, and they're usually dark visions. And as he and and Henry are sitting there, he reveals to Henry, I have had a vision. I have seen you dead, Henry. And the last line of that book is Henry saying, I know. So I wasn't quite sure what to do with that, Chris. (laughs) So I wrote This Tender Land, and then I wrote Lightning Strike, which was a prequel to the series. Well, I'm still trying to figure out, okay, how do I deal with this particular situation? And and honest to God, I, I entered Fox Creek not exactly sure how I was that was going to play out. And, and in the end, you know, if you've read Fox Creek, you know how that plays out. I'm not going to reveal the ending to, to other readers, but you, you could see what my decision was. You know, I can see in, 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 in Fox Creek where you're deviating a bit from the, the normal strictures of a, of a mystery and kind of, 
having that, some of the fun that you've had with the Tenderland and your other standalones with a little more free for. And so you've, you've played with some, some subplots and, and one of those subplots deals with the, you know, environmental destruction. And uh, why don't you talk about, we talk about that, that topic and, and how, how that's in, informing your writing. Well, I've actually dealt with that issue in a number of the novels in Vermilion Drift, which talks about the mining industry, the history of the mining industry in Northern Minnesota. I talk about the fact that there was a time when Northern Minnesota, where the mining was taking place, looked like the surface of the moon. It was just, it had been obliterated. All the beauty of it was just not there in the way that it has re rebounded. I dealt with in, in Manitou Canyon, I dealt with the, the insensitivity of the large corporations to what the land requires in order to, to maintain it, be in, in compatible relationship with the land. I've, I have talked about the issue of the sulfide mining in Northern Minnesota, which is a very contentious issue in the Boundary Waters area. So I've tackled these issues before with Fox Creek. The issue was entering Fox Creek. I wasn't sure what the issue was going to be. And it ended up being the issue of water, which is, a, is becoming more and more an enormous issue for, for us to deal with fresh water. And in now, my, the book I'm working on now, which is a, a book called Spear Crossing, it'll come out probably in 2024, the next in the Cork O'Connor series. I have created an Enbridge situation where some of Cork's family is involved in a protest and that plays a part in the story. But you know, I mean, in truth, the opportunities to create stories that have environmental issues at the heart of them are everywhere, you know? We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. The Boundary Waters is more than a stunning collection of pristine water, trees, and ancient rocks. It's the people, the memories, the life-changing experiences that make this wilderness such an important part of our lives. Connect with this special place by subscribing to Friends of the Boundary Waters newsletter or following us on social media. Visit www.friends-bwca.org to learn more. You know, what's interesting about your, your writing is that the, the characters are not static. They're, they're dynamic. You know, they, they age over time. And, and, you know, I'd like to have you explore the, 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 the character of Stephen Cork's, Cork's son here and maybe talk about, talk about that, that process of having dynam dynamic characters and, and how, how you work with that. Yeah. When I taught, used to teach mystery writing. And I would talk about static versus dynamic. This is what I meant. If you create a central character, a series around a central character, you have only, I think, two choices in the kind of protagonist that you create. You can create a static protagonist or you can create a dynamic protagonist. What's a static protagonist? Somebody who never changes. Somebody who's the same book to book to book, story to story to story. Think Sherlock Holmes. You've read one Sherlock Holmes story, it's going to be the same guy in every story you read after that. Dynamic protagonist, as you've already pointed out, is somebody who does change, somebody who ages, somebody for whom what happens in one entry in the series is reflected in how that character responds to the world in subsequent entries. So when I began writing the Cork O'Connor series, I imagined Cork as a man of, of about 40. As I'm writing him now, 
in Spirit Lake. He's about 57 years old. So he's aged about 17 years. Everybody, his children have aged. Stephen was, when he, back when he was Stevie, he was five years old. And now he's in, in Spirit Lake or in Spirit Crossing. He is about to get married. So that's one of the things for me that's kept, kept the writing fresh. Because every time I sit down to write about the O'Connors, they're they're different people. They're not the same people they were in the last story. Things have happened that have changed how they see themselves and the relationship to one another and the relationship to the, to the world. And I think that's part of what keeps it attractive for readers is, is they're on this journey with the O'Connor clan, seeing where they're all going in their lives. And in Fox Creek in particular, I set up a new situation for Stephen that I'm following up in Spirit Crossing. He falls in love with with Belle in Fox Creek and in Spirit Crossing, we're preparing for their marriage. You know, the topic of family the, is, is really important in the, the you know, in, in for Cork O'Connor and, and the series there. What, I mean, what does family mean to you and, and, and how does that come through in your writing? Yeah, I think family is, is the most significant relationship any of us are going to know while we're on this earth in this particular flat. Family's always been important to me. When I... When I sent down to write the Cork O'Connor series, y- you know, I, I, you've heard that old saw, write what you know, write what you know. Well, I, I happen to believe that. But when I sat down to write a mystery, that first Cork O'Connor novel, I realized there are so many things I'm going to be writing about that I don't know. You know, I don't know about police investigations. I don't know about ballistics. I don't know about the minds of killers. You know, this was not dinner table conversation when I was growing up. So... If I was going to write what I know and still write the mysteries, then how was I going to do that? And I thought, okay, I, if I ground the mystery in the things that I do know, maybe then the rest of it will, will be fine. So what did I know? I figured at 40 years of age, I have a pretty good grasp of human nature. So that's character is going to be at the heart of my story. The people are going to be important. I had, had fallen in love with Minnesota. And, and so I knew I wanted to write about Minnesota. So that was a, another thing that I know could write about. And I'm a family man. I could write about what it is to be a family man. And as long as I stuck with those foundations for the work themselves, I, I could get away with murder, you know? Being a, one of our, our viewers here that has a, a question, you know, how do you keep track of all the characters as they kind of age and, and experience? Do you have like a, a spreadsheet or something like that? You know, Wouldn't that have been a good idea? No, I need to keep track in my head. Or I'll go back to earlier earlier entries in the series, earlier books, and see, okay, how did I set that up? What was the relationship here? Or, you know, and every once in a while I screw things up. I have misspelled important characters' names from one book to the next. Fortunately, readers out there catch these things and they let me know. And so while it might be a mistake in the hardcover edition, by the time the paperback edition comes out, we've corrected the error. I remember one story in which, in which Stephen, Stevie, is in the third grade at the beginning of the story. And at the end of the story, he's in the second grade. <laughs> it's not because he was held back. So I do, I do screw up things a little bit. But the, the important things I, I, I have been able to keep significantly in my head as I'm creating the characters, but I do have to go back and reference them periodically. That's, that's really impressive. 
you know, when you have a, a mystery series that, that's dynamic and, and dealing in a, in a contemporary setting, I mean, you have to do a lot of research because technology is changing in that. So, so how do you, how do you research all, all the changing technology with police investigations to, to make it, you know, authentic in that sense? Oh, that's a real bugaboo, Chris. That's why I like setting my standalones in the past. I don't have to worry about keeping up with technology. But yeah, I mean, it's important. There's all these investigations. Well, the reality of it is this. There, it, there are always technical advances in forensic investigation. Are they readily available to rural law enforcement? Generally speaking, no. So you rely on BCA or FBI or something like that. And so very often my stories, it's, it's at a rural level and they are doing their best to, to figure things out themselves without all of the technological stuff to coming into play. But periodically I have to do that. And so I, you know, I have to, I have to be honest with you. The internet is a wonderful resource. <laughs> it's a good place to begin anyway. So I'll begin my research usually on the web. And then I'll go deeper into articles or, or I'll talk to people in the field who know, who know this stuff. So I'm always talking to cops at law enforcement officers at various levels, you know, the county sheriffs, homicide detectives, coroners. I've talked to FBI people and, and the secret service, you name it, you know, you go to the people who have the knowledge that the one thing I love is, you know. They are just so tickled to share the, what they know with you, that somebody's interested in what they know. So I, ha and I try then, if they're willing, to acknowledge them when I do the acknowledgements. I know that books said in the past, like the, the Tenderland, don't present those technological problems. But, but you, you do a lot of research, and, and maybe you want to describe the research process for this Tenderland, how you, how you research some of the you know, the, the depression heroes elements of that. Sure. For those of you out there who haven't read this Tenderland, it's a standalone novel. It's set in the summer of 1932, uh, and it deals with four orphans who are on the run from the law because they've committed a terrible crime, but for the right reasons. They know if they take to the, uh, to the roads to get away, they're going to be caught quickly because a huge manhunt has been launched to capture them. They're afraid to ride the rails as everybody was doing back in the depression because the railroads back then were patrolled by private cops called bulls. And the bulls had a reputation for being incredibly cruel. So the kids are afraid to ride the rails and stop. instead they decide to take to the rivers. They canoe a river called the Gilead to the Minnesota River. They canoe the Minnesota River to the Mississippi. And their plan is to canoe all the way down the Mississippi to St. Louis where they believe they have family and they'll be safe. The, the geographic research for this was a lot of fun because I canoed and kayaked the rivers that the kids did. And that was an enormous amount of fun. I visited every, every stop the kids made in their trip was a place I stopped and researched. For the historical stuff, we in, in Minnesota are blessed with an incredibly, particularly here in the Twin Cities, with an incredibly fine historical resource, the Minnesota History Center. There is a section of the History Center that is called the Gale Family Library. It is, among other things, an archive of every newspaper ever published in Minnesota and, and also an archive of first-person accounts by people who survived or, you know, lived through all of these periods and historical photographs is great. So I spent hours in the Gale Family Library 
you know, going over microfilm newspapers from the day. So I knew what, uh, what people were wearing and what things cost back then. What were the events of the day that I could build into the story? Significant part of the story deals with the opening, particularly deals with the Native American boarding school experience. And I had, because, you know, I have a lot of friends in the Native community who are my age or younger. They didn't go through the boarding school system, but their parents did, or their aunties and uncles did, or the grandparents did. But when I asked my friends, okay, what did they tell you about that experience? To a person, they said they refused to talk about it. It was such a horrific experience for them. So I had to do deep research to find survivors who were willing to talk about it. And, and their accounts informed a great deal how I created the boarding school for, for the opening of this tender land. You know, and I just... So I did an enormous amount of reading. Well, that's part of the, the discipline of the craft, doing that research and all that work to have that, that foundation for the creative process that as the magic now goes to your fingertips and onto the keyboard to, 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 make, to make that happen. And, and you'll have to have the stuff up here <laughs> as it travels down. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the character of Odie, here, why don't you talk about, in, in this Tenderland, talk about that character and what that character means to you. Sure. So Odia Banyan is the narrator of this Tenderland, and it's a dual narrative technique. You have an older man, Odie, when he is a very old man, recalling this experience he had when he was about 13 years old, 12, 13 years old. So you have two different voices at work. You have the voice of experience, age, wisdom blending in with that naive voice of a 12, 13-year-old kid, which was a lot of fun playing with those two voices. Odie, one of the things I wanted to do with this tender land, because I, I was so in love with Mark Twain as a kid, was to write kind of an updated version of Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> so if you remember, your Huck Finn tells the story. And, and so Odie, my Huck Finn, tells the story. Odie is a storyteller as I am. And, you know, Odie is really, he's more than any ever character I have ever created. Odie came out of me, who I, who I was and who I am. Um, Odie's a storyteller. I'm a storyteller. Or Odie was a Boy Scout. I was a Boy Scout. Odie is, he's a very resourceful character. I have always considered myself to be so. Odie, Odie is loyal almost to a fault. And, and loyalty is one of the values that I hold too steadfastly. And Odie, as, as I told you earlier, Chris, Odie's not above stooping to a bit of larceny if the, if the situation calls for it, and they're done that. So Odie, Odie became my mouthpiece. Odie became the way in which I talked about those things that I have discovered and believe in deeply about life after 72 years of living it. And when, when you were writing that book, it's, it's a little bit where Mark Twain meets Homer. And maybe you want to talk about how you use the Odyssey as a, as a vehicle for structuring this Tenderland as well. I tried to write the story a few times and I was never able to sink my teeth into it. And the thing was, I finally realized is, you know, I don't have a structure for the story. I don't, I, I don't know why these kids are out there on the river. I don't know where they're coming from, where they're going. But, but one day it occurred to me, you know, my father, when my father, the high school English teacher, when I was a kid, had me, when other kids were reading, uh, you know, the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, he had me reading the Iliad and the Odyssey. Never cared much for the Iliad, but I absolutely loved the Odyssey. And I thought, you know, wh what if I were to structure this story in the way Homer structured the Odyssey and not have my kids 
experienced things that mirrored all of the adventures that Odysseus had as he was journeying from Troy back to Ithaca. And once I had that structure, I, I knew I could write, I knew I could write the story. So if you read the, the novel, every section that the kids are involve the kids involves a, a mirroring and a, an experience, an adventure that Odysseus had. Yeah. And that's really what finally allowed me to really launch into the, the writing of it in a significant way. And once I did that, it just, that story just rolled forward. Yeah. How, how, how exciting to get to, after you had that structure, your creative juice that it wrote itself on, huh? you know, it kind of, it kind of, that would be making it, I don't want to make too light of the writing process, but having, that was kind of breaks the log jam, doesn't it? It can, okay, here's, here's what I've got here. Yeah. You know, I, I followed a different, entirely different creative process with both Ordinary Grace and this Tenderland and the new book that's coming out, The River We Remember. You know, when I write a mystery, it's a very, mystery is a very tightly woven fabric of storytelling. Everything depends so significantly on everything else. And as I've told audiences, I think that the, the success of a mystery depends largely on the timing of the reveals when you give the reader the clues that are going to be necessary to solving a mystery. But, and, and, and a mystery is an intellectual construct. It comes out of your head. It's a puzzle you create. Ordinary Grace, This Tender Land, and The River Where We Remember didn't come out of my head. They came out of my heart. And I wanted to find a process that would allow me to, would allow the reader to feel like I was telling them a story from my heart. So going into the writing of those books, I really didn't know very much about the stories that I was going to create. We know I think a story through in the Cork O'Connor series as completely as I can before I ever begin to write it. But with these standalones, they revealed themselves to me as I was writing. It was a much more organic process. And I have had readers tell me that they respond very differently. They really respond with their hearts to, to these stories. Kent, I'd like to return to one of the characters you have in, in Fox Creek here and have you talk about it. And, and it's the, you address Native issues so profoundly and, and in, in the character of the wolf, you, you address the issue of identity. And why don't you talk a bit about that character and how you came to, to that, that topic to, to explore? Do you know, identity is, in speaking with my friends in the Native community, identity is a huge issue because their culture has been so shattered and so many, and dispersed. And so many people of Native heritage have no real idea or connection with that heritage. And so they're trying to figure out who they are. They're, they're not white. They're not really Native. Who are they? So I have a character, Laloop, who is of Native heritage, but he has no idea what that heritage really is. And so he's trying to figure out who he is. He creates an identity for himself, the wolf. Um, and later on, he assumes a different identity as he begins to understand more and more who he is and, and why he's here with the help of Henry Malou. So th that was really part of it. And if, if you look at other characters, that's, that's kind of a, a thread that runs through a number of the characters in this story. Oh, Kent, we have a, a, a number of questions here that I, and so I'll try to I've gotten to a couple of them, but, but I'll, I'll try to get to, you know, some of the, some of these questions here to, to honor, honor our viewers here. And, sure. and so there's a, there's a question here that, that let's see, 
Mary asked, will we ever have a, a story of Cork's daughter, the, the nun? You keep promising it, but it's been so long that I've forgotten her name. So yeah, there she, you go. She's one of the major, major threads that runs through the book I'm working on now. Annie comes home. And the reason she comes home is uh, uh, significant. But, but Annie's back. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to give away anything more, but Annie's back. Okay. Here's a, qu a question from our reader, Linda. After reading Ordinary Grace, I'm now looking forward to reading the Cork O'Connor series. Should I, should I read them in any order? What should I start with? You know, every writer of a long-running series understands that a reader might come to your work in the 7th or the 12th or the 19th entry in the series. So you have to write every book so that it can stand by itself. It can't rely on a reader's awareness of all the history involved for that book to be enjoyable, satisfying. That said, you can't get away from, from a reader understanding there is significant history involved with these characters. It's because the series, the 19 books in the series, span 15 to 17 years in the lives of the characters involved, it's a much richer experience if you begin at the beginning and you watch their development because we gain some characters and we lose some characters along the way. But you don't have to do it that way. It's just that if you don't, you're going to read a book and, and Stephen is 16 years old and the next book you read, he's five, you know? So it's, it can be a little disconcerting in that regard. One of the best ways to begin the series, I think, is by reading a book called Lightning Strike. It was actually number 18 in the series, but it was a prequel to the whole series. So you don't need to know anything at all about the history of the O'Connor clan in order to enjoy that particular novel. And it gives you a good, it will give readers a good introduction to who I am as a storyteller, the kinds of elements that they can find typically in a Cork O'Connor story. And if you like what you read and if you like how I sound as a storyteller, then maybe you might want to think about going back and start it starting at the beginning. Okay, if I'm the folks at Simon and Schuster, make them make them buy all 19 books. You know, you know, start start with the prequel, 18 book. Make them go back to to Iron Iron Lake here. We had and, so and try to buy them in in the, those beautiful hardcover editions. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We have Kaylee here answer a question that Kaylee loves Desolation Mountain. And, and it reminds it reminds them of of Paul well, the Paul Wellstone story story was that the stimulus for 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 that? Yeah, I mean there were so many questions about that particular tragedy, and there was so much evidence that was not included in the final report. You can't help but question what really occurred there, and so I have I had always in the back of my mind the idea. I think I want to to create a story that will kind of mirror the, the tragedy of Paul Wellstone. You know, I supply my own answers to the, the questions, but yeah, that was such a, you know, that was such a wounding for all of us here in Minnesota. I, I'm, I don't think it's something that maybe we still haven't completely recovered from it. Paul Wellstone was such a, a beautiful part of, of who we perceive ourselves to be. Now, going back to our, our landscape here, you know, you talked about how been to Camp Denord there. We have a question from a reader. Is, is there a particular part of the Boundary Waters that, that you identify with or an entry point that you are, are, that you like? Yeah, as I was talking to 
to Chris earlier, my first introduction to the Boundary Waters came as a result of Camp Den Nord. So I have often gone up the Echo Trail and accessed the Boundary Waters through the various Echo Trail entry points. But I've also gone in through the Gunflint and Sawbill. Um, I don't really have a particular favorite, but as I was telling Chris, one of my favorite experiences in the Boundary Waters occurred as a result of entering through Sawbill. And, uh, and uh, it, it, I, I saw my first moose. My first moose and only moose that I've ever seen in the wilds. And that, that also, that same outing accompanied the most spectacular display of the Northern Lights I have ever seen. I, I got up at, at one in the morning to, you know, to do what you get up to do at one in the morning when you're camping out. Stepped outside the tent and looked up and I was just blown away. The, the entire sky was alive from, from horizon to horizon with colors and these shifting curtains. And I woke everybody up. And for the next two or three hours, we just sat mesmerized by these Northern Lights. It was an extraordinary outing. Wow, what a, what a, what a great story that one of the benefits of having to get up at one in the morning there is you, you get to see the Northern Lights sometimes there. We've got a, a couple of diehard readers here that have a question. Are you going to reintroduce the, the O'Connor's love for chocolate cookies? Yeah, they're chocolate chip cookies, please. Chocolate chip cookies. Yeah, the, the Ernie cookie jar is always filled with chocolate chip cookies. And there's an obligatory, at least one obligatory scene in every Cork O'Connor novel where they gather at the kitchen table and they drink milk and eat chocolate chip cookies or drink coffee and eat chocolate chip cookies and figure out what the hell they had, they're going to do next. You know, I have an Ernie cookie jar up on my kitchen counter. <laughs> Just like the one I describe in, in the O'Connor novels. As you said, you, you write what you know, right? You write what you know. There you go. <laughs> well, kind of looking ahead here, we've got, you've got to maybe want to talk about the, the river we remember that'll be coming out in September here. So what, what can we look forward with, with, with that? Sure. Very briefly, it, I think of it as a companion novel to both Ordinary Grace and This Tender Land in that it's set in southern Minnesota rather than the northern Minnesota, the Cork O'Connor series. And it's also set in an earlier time. Ordinary Grace was the summer of 1961. This tender land was the summer of 1932. The river we remember takes place in the summer of 1958. And it deals, you know, it's kind of a straightforward mystery in certain respects. A, a prominent citizen is killed and the question at the heart of the story is who killed him and why. But really, Chris, it's more an exploration. Um, my father was a veteran of World War II. And uh, when he came back from the war, he was a man wounded in body and in spirit. And he was just like, he was so like the friends of my, the fathers of my friends, men who had, who had gone away kids, you know, 18 years of age to fight in Europe or the Pacific or a bit later in Korea. And, and they came back men wounded by the horrors that they had seen and the horrors that they had been a part of. And I've always wondered how did these men heal? What about the people they left behind who loved them, their, their mothers, their wives, their fathers, people who prayed for them desperately while they were gone and maybe who lost them in the end? How did they, how did they manage to heal all of these people from these deep wounds? And so that's really what's at the heart of the river. We read. It will come out on September 5th, and I have a very long and arduous touring schedule already set up for that book. But I'll be lots of places in Minnesota. Well, 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 great. And 
and and folks can can look at your website and can follow your schedule of events events from that. And, and yeah, so. we're gonna. I'll have it posted in early June. The act, the full schedule. Why, why, why? Super. Here we're nearing the end of our our time here, and I just as writing is both an intellectual pursuit and a, a pursuit from the heart. Here, it's always the work here at Friends of the Boundary Waters, and I want to, you know, from from the heart, thank you for your 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 generosity of time and and for folks that were at our annual gala last year. You'll know that. Ken was so gracious and generous to have an auction item where someone could could bid to have a a character written into a a novel there. So so just that the 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 generosity that you displayed with that is is very humbling for us as well. And and for all the everyone viewing this, we're we're very humbled by all of you, our supporters. We just concluded our our open water May fundraising campaign and in recognition that ICE is finally out of up north here. And so we were we met our goal of of raising fifty thousand dollars and in fact surpassed that and have, have raised over seventy thousand. So from the heart, I want to thank all of you that that contributed to that. And and we're trying to share the boundary waters with with all of you. And we we're doing that to, to you know, connect with people and outdoors and to thank all of you for supporting supporting the work that we do. And Again, Kent, I'm, I'm so humbled by you and humbled by your talents as, as well. So your the craft of your writing is 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 really impressive, and and your connection to the landscape of the Boundary Waters is equally as impressive as the craft of your writing. So, thank you, Kent. Thank you, everyone. You're welcome, Chris. So long, everybody. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be covering a wide range of recreational topics this season, from hiking trails to tips and tricks, and we'll meet some great personalities from the BWCA along the way, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Big Red Canoe is a presentation of Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness, original music by Surge and the Swell. I'm Dave Meyer, and we'll see you next time on Big Red Canoe. Thanks to the dedication of people from across the nation, we've made incredible victories in the fight against copper sulfide mining. For now, we've stopped this polluting industry from putting a shovel in the ground. But the threat is still there. That's why we've been working to pass a Prove It First bill in Minnesota. The law is simple. Before a copper sulfide mine in Minnesota can be permitted, the Prove It First law would require independent scientific proof that just one copper sulfide mine has operated in the United States for at least 10 years without causing pollution, and that one mine has been closed for at least 10 years without polluting. It's common sense. Let's protect our clean water. Let's pass the Prove It First bill.